Hello, everyone. On today's podcast, I am joined by Vivian Chong, who is releasing her graphic novel this week, Dancing After 10. Uh, Vivian, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Hi, everybody. Vivian, I read your book over the weekend, and, you know, obviously it is a very personal project, and I wanted you on the podcast to tell the listeners a little bit about not only your story, but also the backstory of this graphic novel as well. So uh, I guess we'll start in 2004. Um, If you want to give the listeners a little bit of background and context of what you went through, um, which, you know, inspired this personal memoir. Great. Um, 2004, it was close to my birthday. December, around Boxing Day, December 26th, I went on a trip. And from then, everything fell apart. I went into a medical emergency and I was rushed by a helicopter to the hospital. And the person who was involved in a whole medical accident left the scene because they were scared. And I was in a coma a medical induced coma. And I was severely burned from the medication. It became an internal fire that burns my organ and the exterior of my face and my body. And after I woke up, so I had a near death experience. After I woke up from the coma, I vividly remember the scent, the way the hospital room smell and the sound I hear and all the humming of machines around me. And then the imagery when I was going through the coma, I, my first impulse after coming out from this near-death experience is to capture everything in drawing. Because this is who I am, I'm an artist. So my first impulse is to capture everything I'm going through externally and internally capturing all this intensity of the events that unfolding in front of me. And after I discharged from the hospital, I started finding a drawing pad. And I, at that point, I already went through several surgery, skin graft, eye transplant, I should say corneal transplant and stem cell transplant. And I see a glimpse of the building across from mine when I got home. And that's when I found my drawing pad and I start drawing vigorously 120 pages of my medical experience that transform me and make who I am today. And sadly, after the 120 pages, I cannot even see the line on the pages anymore. That's when I surrender. I surrender to my body, my experience, and life in front of me, and I put the project on hold. But after that, my life wasn't on hold. My life kept going. I have to reinvent myself and skip a bunch of years. So 2020, I'm making a dance production, and I have to show my co-producer of my myself who am i why am i want to make a dance production so i took out my comic book that i drew 120 pages and i show it to my co-producer so she get a glimpse of what happened to me before i become who i am now 
And she read, she sat there and read it for an hour. She go back and forth and she look up. She was just really touched and she was shaking. She said, we're gonna finish this project and before we start our project. So that's what we did. And I find a local um, comic book drawer and we collaborate. And that's how come we collaborate and bring my book, Dancing After 10, to life, to everybody now. Yeah, Does that answer a, your question? Yeah, of course. No, it's amazing, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the artist that you collaborated with was uh, Georgia Weber, who has her own graphic novel uh, called Dumb, Living Without a Voice, that documents her own experience coping with the loss of her voice after throat surgery. And I definitely want to talk to you about this collaboration uh, with Georgia. But first, I want to go back. So, you know, 2004, so what you're diagnosed with is called 10, uh, toxic uh, epidermal necrolysis. And it's this rare and extreme drug reaction that causes your skin to peel off. And, and, and you know, for you, there was pro progressive scarring of, of your corneas that, that left you blind. Um, you know, and, and you touch on this a lot in, in your book, um, kind of the personal uh, relationships that you're dealing with, you know, at the time and, and afterwards. I, I just want to know what it was like for you, you know, when you woke up and you had to deal with this new reality and you had to adjust to everything. Um, was there a long period of anger for you or, or what was that process like of sorting through your feelings? When I first woke up from the coma, I was burned on my skin, my arm and my thigh and my body. I haven't open my eyes for a long time. My eyes were a little sliver, very small, just barely have strength to open. And I remember reaching out for the nurse button all the time with one finger. Even that was hard to do. So nobody know I am going blind and nobody informed me and nobody double check until they got a hold of my breathing because I was hooked up to breathing machines. Um, I have a tracheotomy, drew a little hole in my throat and put a oxygen tube here. And I couldn't go to the bathroom, so I have a pee bag. I was immobile for a long time on the bed. And so no one knows I cannot see. And I thought it was just nearsighted eyes, which I had before all this happened. By the time I opened my eyes bigger, I realized that it's a lot of things in front, a lot of scar tissues that is pulling my eyelid, so it can't really close properly. My eyes constantly streaming up tears coming down. So the whole thing, it's very painful. Besides the burn on my arms and my body, my eyes and the interior of my mouth was also very painful to move, and I couldn't swallow anything. And the first thing they feed me again is applesauce. That's what I could do at that time. So no, I didn't know I would result in a condition. I thought it's temporarily because I was only 28. You wouldn't think 28 I would become not moving and burned and scarred and blind. And then eventually a bunch of years passed, a couple years, and I had a second wave of shock from this 10 condition. Um, it results in scarring in my eardrums just because it has a second wave of trauma in the body or shock from this medical reaction. And it wasn't because I'm still on any medication. It was just 
unknown, it was just having a second wave of shock. I was suspecting it's because I went to swim in a swimming pool, but even that, nobody can tell me what really happened. So I could not hear for a couple of years. So I was experiencing blindness and deaf, and I communicating by moving my face, smiling, and what, you know, people had to scream in my ears. So am I angry? Of course. And people would keep telling me, you should do this now. You should go to this support group. You should go to read the Bible. You should go to this and that. You should learn Braille. So in my mind, it's like, give me a second to think. I need to breathe. I need to figure out what am I going through? Is it going to last for a long time? So I was living in a bunch of unknowns and a bunch of um, prediction from different people around me. So there's a lot of voices. And so my emotion, it's confused, chaotic, angry, disappointed, grieving. It was really a lot of emotions. And to be honest, that's why I really want to draw it down because it's so intense. Even words cannot capture it. But visual a lot of visual that's moving through me yeah were you an artist before um you know this um incident vivian definitely i was drawing since i was five years old and i remember my i come from a nation background i grew up in hong kong my parents always say if you draw you're gonna end up being a beggar on the street and so to me Drawing, it's my first love and it's my hobby and it's what I want to become. I want to become an artist when I was five. I don't know what kind of artist. I never put my finger on like interior designer, a graphic designer, a painter, but I just know I love arts. I always look and I look intensely at things, even the details of the corner of the mouth or the doorknobs or the patterns on the ceiling. So for me, is an escape into my imagination. And when I was in my 20s, um, 19, 20, 21, 22, I went to university and my undergrad was in fine art. And after that, I worked as a graphic designer and I went to web design and then I went back to school for 3D animation. And then later on, I went to video editing for film and television. So my whole career path was gearing me to be a visual designer in any aspect, moving graphic or 2D, anima 2D animation or illustration. So that's my life. That's who I thought I am. And I still think that's who I am. Yeah, and I think, you know, after all of this happened, and as you detailed in the book, you know, you're still finding a lot of different creative outlets for yourself. Um, including, and I know you played in a band and I think you organized your own comedy show uh, later on as well. And I know, as you mentioned, um, when you had your vision temporarily restored, uh, you had started drawing and that's where those pages came from. Um, I would love to, to hear from you about just, you know, discovering, uh, maybe rediscovering kind of those creative outlets, but, but obviously, um, in a different way, right? Because of the limitations that you have. Uh, what was that process like for you of, of just introducing um, a lot of these creative outlets back into your life or new creative outlets into your life? It's liberation. I work like that. It's my personality. When someone tell me, you can't do this, I would just examine that comment. 
I cannot do it. Why? Like when I was young, my parents said, you cannot use art as a career. And I would ask internally, why? Why did they say that? It's probably because my parents never had the experience of loving art, doing art, expressing themselves in that way. So I just tell myself that that's their experience. It's not confining my experience. So when people tell me, you cannot draw, then I will examine that again. Why can I not draw? Even now, I'm still drawing and my book has some of my current drawings. It, you know, when something is shut out from you, it doesn't mean you cannot do it. It means you would see it and do it differently. That's all. So having my sight uh, removed from me, what it gives is a liberation. It helps me to draw differently. And it also helped me to open up an avenue, for example, music. I haven't explored very much when I was younger. I was playing in a punk band just before the incident happened to me. And then I was still a drummer, but then I started investigating into community drumming. So I went to an African drumming ensemble. And later on now I'm in a samba marching band. So I'm playing drums still. And I also pick up an instrument, the ukulele. And the way people tell me is you must learn the chords and you must learn how to pick each notes. And then I figure out, I don't like just picking up notes. I like to learn songs. So I start learning songs and I start creating and composing my own songs. So it's really liberating when Actually, all these people who give you comments about you cannot do anything or seemingly giving you a label to confine you, they are actually helping you to rediscover that there is other way. So for me, writing songs is very creative and liberating. And later on, when I have my one woman show, it's because I was studying comedy and doing improv with groups. And I went into an audition with, um, improv group and I remember lining up on the back wall and there was 10 of us and the panelists um the people who give it give us this task are calling two two people out in the middle of the stage and start giving us a topic to act a scene so I was following my scene partner looking at him in the eye and walking forward following his voice and I follow it for maybe three lines and all of a sudden the next step I was airing it and I realized I stepped off from the edge and I was about to fall on the ground in my face. And then I was realizing, what the heck am I doing to myself? I was trying to fit in. I was trying to pass all these tests to be other people. And then I had a wake up call that, you know what? I don't need to do improv in a group. I can create my show. So that's when I start making my one woman show, writing my own script and taking myself on tour. So you asked me what has become of me with all this avenue is liberation. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's so fascinating. What was your first, where was your first uh, one woman show that you did, comedy show? It was at the Second City. Um, yeah, I did. What, what do you yeah. remember about that, that first show? Um, so my show is called The Sunglasses Monologue. And I remember when I first, come out from hospital and come out to my immediate surrounding in my neighborhood. 
I remember people are watching me and they said identifying me in the category that you know you are someone used to a cane and you walk slow and we better get out of your way so I was having this sensation that I'm very noticeable whether I like it or not and believe it or not this is my motivation to help me create a show because I thought if I am being watched whether I like it or not how about I actually make a show that I like to be watched in this show so it's my own selected content and things that I want to share because no matter I like it or not people are gonna look at me so let's take it bigger to the stage and that's what happened with me yeah and have you you know through whether it's your music um you know your theater production your your comedy shows um, have you gotten a lot of feedback from people you know who might be dealing with something similar or you know uh people who who deal with blindness but but also are pursuing their own creative interests Um, have you been able to connect uh with people in that way um funny enough um i don't have a target audience i connect with people just as people because i see myself as a person not a category or a differentness from others so other people might use the blindness as a thing to categorize me but that's not who i see myself i see myself as an artist so my audience are not limited to a certain group of people that who has a sight challenge or hearing challenge it's everybody from seven years old to 92 years old. And I sort of understand who I am more and more because of living in a minority. Um, I gave this talk about intersectionality, about uh, race, about um, your income bracket, about your ability, and all in all, I add to who the person is, is living as a minority and to me it kind of made me feel all uncomfortable when you start having all this category for a person so for me because i don't see other people i don't know what race that person is or the ability to me it's just their essence when i first know them either they're the audience a friend a teacher my students it's all just people so that's why I do my arts because I want to connect, connect with people, not necessarily want to be defined or see other people being defined in a certain category. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Uh, I think, uh, I think for me, what, what you're doing is just so I think inspirational. And like you said, to you know, who, whoever the the audience it might be, uh, talk to me about dancing. Um, I, I know it's a huge theme and a huge part of the book and a huge part uh, of your life. What What is it about dancing that, that uh, draws you to it? So I am innately a very shy person. And with my vision and my ability, I want to even more want to reach out more because of who I am becoming. So I wanted to do something I haven't done before. It seems to make sense to me now that I don't see all these faces that might frighten me before I go reach out and dance with them. But the funny thing is when I first go to social dancing in Latin dance, in swing dance, or ballroom dance, people feel a little bit afraid 
and they start projecting that, oh, if you don't see me, then why can I dance with you? And this has nothing to do with me. If you don't feel comfortable dancing with me, it has everything to do with you. But the thing, funny thing is they would give me a label, like if you are blind, why don't you stay home? This is not for you. And again, I have to reiterate what I said before. When people give me a comment like that, and that just make me think twice, that actually motivate me to be there and show them I could do it. And it has nothing to do with whether I can or not. It's had everything to do with whether I give myself a chance or give them a chance to adjust to me. So that's what I was doing. I would push myself out in a crowd and find a way to put down my bag and my cane and make friends in the entrance. So now escalate to putting my dog away too. So I will ask the doorman or the person who's selling empanadas at the door, can you watch out for my dog? And half the time I'm really lucky people would watch out my belongings and my dog. And, and then I will just ask for an elbow if I can walk with someone into the dance floor. And then from there, I develop a system to just dance from one elbow of a dance partner and ask them not leave to find me a next elbow of another dance partner. So basically that's my effort of um, my methods of going through the crowd. Just keep dancing and non-stopping because once I stop, it's hard to get it going again. It's um, very funny to me and it's tiring, exhilarating and frightening on the same time. And so that's one of my endeavor in dancing and also learning the dance is also tricky because nobody teach with just vocal instruction everybody teach with demonstration doing a dance move how do you hold your partner um how does she put her arms around you and how do you kick your feet and what other dance step is all done visually so i really walk up to the teacher and say could you be more vocal or demonstrate it with my body one time and I hope I could get it. Other, sometimes I get positive feedback, but not all the time. And when I get positive feedback, I just thought there's still hope. So I keep going further and I ask if I can put my hand on someone's shoes so I can see what their dance step is. Sometimes I get no, but most of the time I get yes. So definitely learning dancing is interesting because nobody, I find out nobody learned it the way I do, or nobody has my ability would want to learn dancing. But it, it's, it doesn't mean it's impossible, it just means that I'm the first person. So, and other people who are similar to me might learn it differently too. So there is really unlimited possibility in doing what you want to do, and especially in dancing. Yeah, and now you have uh, your own dance theater production, Dancing with the Universe. Um, with yourself and Kathleen Ray, right? Uh, t tell me about that. So um, Dancing with the Universe is a show, it's most of the parts are choreographed and I would say 30% of the parts are moving. So it's improv, we make it up instantaneously with whoever is on the floor. So it's very unique that way. The show due to coronavirus is on hold right now, but it is still really interesting to develop the show. So we've been developing the show and choreographing for half a year. And the methodology is following the timeline of my narrative of my life and describing the sensation with body movement of 
what happened to me emotionally that is unbearable, unspeakable, or very exhilarating, exciting. So in the show, there is a scene, talk about drawing, but it's all done in dancing. What is drawing mean to me? And what does drawing mean to me when you have no more time left? All the pages are leaving you and the lines that you draw is running away from you. So the dancer literally moved a paper away from me and I'm trying to chase a paper. So all these are done in a choreography and it's very moving. And the end of that one particular scene, everybody has their hand covering my eyes and I cannot chase a paper anymore because they are holding me in place and moving the hand over my face. And um, so for me, expressing dancing, expressing emotion through dancing is another avenue to express my love for drawing and express my love as an artist. And, and I hope it answers your question. Yeah, you know, we have to talk about catcher as well because um you know your dog you know part of this process uh was you and i think this is a larger theme of kind of overcoming uh you know stereotypes of of people who are blind and overcoming your own fears and kind of pushing through and and you had a fear of dogs right oh totally um the funny thing is when you couldn't see what's coming at you, the impact is even bigger. <laughs> so I remember I walked down the street with the cane and one time there was a dog coming from the side and the owner couldn't get the leash retreat fast enough. The dog went up to my thigh and it really scares me. And I remember multiple times happened in my life when I was in school in Hong Kong, we have to wear uniforms and I was walking and all of a sudden there is a black dog holding the corner of my school dress and it wouldn't let go. And I knew very well why he wouldn't let me go is because I have a piece of meat in my school bag. And you might ask, why do I have meat? It's because we had cooking lesson in Hong Kong as part of the curriculum. And I was debating at that time whether to give the dog my lunch bag for this piece of meat or just keep going. And I remember I was more scared of my teacher and the dog. So I just kept walking, but the whole time I was so scared. I dragged the dog with me for three blocks before he let go of my school dress. And it's full of saliva and has a hole on the corner. And then another time when I was a little bit older, I visit a relatives in Vancouver and these relatives has a little Beijing dog. And I was coming to their kitchen to get a glass of water and the little dog jumped up and took a bite of my thigh in the middle of the night in pitch dark. And I was just horrified by all these things happened to my life experiences with dogs. And my parents never like pets. And I know I don't have any relatives that has dog. And it's not really common to have dogs in a very congested living quarter. So yeah, dog is like a foreign thing to me. And when I met Catcher, I was very scared, <laughs> even though I persuaded myself that, you know what, this is going to change my life. It's going to be the next experience after using a white cane. I went to the dog school. I feel like a failure the first week. Nobody is newbies. Everybody is a repeater. They had their first guide dog and the second guide dog and third. And I'm a new person having a dog. And so I feel in inadequate. I couldn't even walk out of my room and come back to the same room. I would always uh, come out from a day of training with my dog and I 
out from the long corridor, I would always go to a wrong room and try to open a door and uh, another person would come. I would open a door, this is not your room. And I feel so embarrassed. How do all these other people have similar ability? They find their own room. While all the room doors look the same, how does the dog know? So till, till today, I still cannot answer you why, but I can tell you because I'm creative. So I put a little red bow tie on the doorknob and another time I tie garbage back around the doorknob. And that's how come me and my dog after a day of training can go back to the room because we, he see the garbage bag or the bow tie. So to me, it's definitely an experience learning about what my dog can do and learning about what I can do and learning about what we together can do together as a team. Yeah, I think that's amazing. That's one of the favorite parts of my book, of, of your book, when you introduce uh, Catcher. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Georgia Weber earlier. So you had um, these sketches and, and drawings that were from, uh, I guess, over uh, a decade ago uh, before, you know, um, it resurfaced again for you to, to, to be part of this project. Uh, tell me about, you know, I read that, you know, you had worked with Georgia on this project, obviously, and you guys, you two had exchanged audio recordings, emails, phone calls, and talking in person. Uh, what was that process like of, of collaborating and putting this graphic memoir together? Well, what's neat is Georgia is an artist and I am an artist. So we, I give her a lot of freedom of expression. So I, have a story and I know I believe in my story and all the details, I visualize it, revisualizing it again. And I make audio recording that describe the sense in the air, the texture of the furniture and the characters and their clothing and my clothing and our dialogue and what's happening in the atmosphere according to our emotions. And what is the exchange of the dialogue causing us to react all the reactions. So I made detailed recordings for her to reimagine the scene and come out in her own style of drawing, which I know from description from my, my fellow people, the description of my drawing and her drawing are very different style. And I welcome that. And it has everything to do with we trust, like after you lost so much in your life, you can't afford to really not trust. You would think that, okay, if you lost so much and people leave you or they betray you, you should really not trust the world and people anymore. But the thing is the opposite. When you've gone through so much and you've gone through some grief and betrayal, it makes you understand that um, you can live alone. And even though in the world right now, we're living in isolation, but we still have each other in a remote way. And it's just like how I collaborate with my, with my artist, with Georgia, is I have so much trust in our project, our collaboration, my story and her drawing. That's why I, to some extent, I just surrender and let go. I let my story become bigger than just me and my drawing and her drawing too. And later on, when we submit our project to our publisher, the graphic design team also add their creative element into it. The graphic designer added the blue color that tie in the style of drawings and make sure all the cells and the text bubble can relate to each other. We change our text bubble writing style. So 
everything it's very neatly done and it's bigger than just me or Georgia. It's our publisher, the graphic designer, the copywriter, me and her and my story. So that's how collaboration work in this project. It's through a lot of people's effort. And of course, also through my friend's Kathleen's eyes, she helped me to find a continuity in the storytelling, make sure we stick to what we know and what we both see or what, how we all see through her eyes. Yeah, and I think it came out very well. Um, so what's next for you? You know, I know I know the book is obviously releasing this week. I'm sure you're doing uh, a lot of interviews and, and you're excited, maybe nervous, uh, you know, for people to, to check out this project and all of the emotions that comes with a book release. Um, you know, like you mentioned right now with the global pandemic, uh, a lot of stuff is on hold, um, like your dance theater production. But are you looking, are you pursuing any other new uh, creative interests or working on new comedy, new music? Uh, what's next for you? I'm making an audiobook version of Dancing After 10. And it's also a very interesting endeavor because I will not be seeing my own book. I will be seeing through another person's eyes all together with their creative input to make an audio version of this book. And it will be leaning more fictional writing than as it is, as what you see each cell. So it's another stylizing way of making an audio book. So that is coming up. Yeah, that, that will be awesome. So um, for everyone listening, um, the book that is out this week is called Dancing After 10, a graphic memoir by Vivian Chong and Georgia Weber from Fantagraphic Books. Um, I've personally read it and, and recommend everyone to, to check it out and really appreciate Vivian, you coming on and sharing a part of your story. And, and definitely when the global pandemic is over, I have to uh, come check out your dance show and I, gotta, I have to come to a comedy show too. I'm, I'm a big fan of comedy. So um, I definitely want to come check all of that out.